If you're a professional brewer, you know how frustrating it can be when you go to place a yeast order and what you're looking for is out of stock. Well, Imperial Yeast is here to help by guaranteeing that commercial orders up to 20 liters of 10, yes, 10 of their most popular strains will ship free if they're not in stock when you place your order. Some of these strains include A38 Juice for those hazy IPAs, A07 Flagship, a classic in clean American styles, L13 Global, which is said to be one of the world's most popular lager strains, A44 Kviking for your warm fermented beers, and so many more. So in addition to pitching right with the highest quality yeast on the market, they're promising that yeast will be ready when you need it or shipping is on them. Whether you're a pro or a home brewer, if you haven't tried Imperial Yeast in your brewery, it's time to up your game. You can check out everything Imperial Yeast has to offer and place your commercial orders at imperialyeast.com. Hey everybody, you are listening to the 320th episode of the Brewlosophy Podcast, which means it is time for yet another Brew&A. I'm your host, Marshall Schott, and today I'm joined by contributor Will Lovell to answer a bunch of questions submitted by listeners of the show, something we do every 10th episode. Man, I really do enjoy these episodes. I probably say that every time now that I think about it, but I do enjoy the episodes. I like the questions. I like getting in here and answering, see what you guys are thinking about, and then it gives me ideas too, so I'm really excited. Yeah, uh, I think we say that we enjoy these episodes because they're very enjoyable. Uh, I always look forward to these Brew and A episodes as well, not just because they require a tad less planning, which is always nice, but we've got some really thoughtful listeners who submit killer questions that really do kind of tickle that part of our brains that makes us think a little bit outside of the box, at least sometimes. So this is going to be a fun one. All right, if you enjoy this show, we'd love for you to consider becoming a patron of Brewlosophy, which you can do over at patreon.com slash brewlosophy by making a small monthly pledge. You're going to receive rewards like access to unpublished contributor recipes, unique discounts at yakimavalleyhops.com, and an invitation to a monthly live Q&A session with somebody in the brewing world. Coming up in February 2024, Dana Garvis, founder of Oregon Brew Lab will be hanging out with patrons. In addition to being uh, a very accomplished home brewer, Dana is a trained brewing chemist who helped build the quality control lab at Ninkasi Brewing Company before starting her own company in 2016. Oregon Brew Lab offers a variety of essential analyses for affordable prices to both commercial and home brewers. We've had the pleasure of working with Oregon Brew Lab many times over the years, and Dana is truly an incredible member of this awesome community. I'm really looking forward to this session. If you are too and you'd like to be a part of it, be sure to make your pledge of just $3 or more by Friday, February 23rd, uh, 2024, as Dana is going to be taking those questions on Saturday the 24th. On top of all of that, patrons have the opportunity to give us show ideas and submit questions that we uh, tend to prioritize for these Brew and A episodes, which is pretty cool. Learn more about becoming a patron and make your pledge today over at patreon.com slash brewlosophy. Another really easy way to support us is by using the links found at brewlosophy.com slash support when you're shopping online. Your experience won't change at all, and we get a little kickback for the referral. And finally, if you wouldn't mind letting us know what you think about this show by leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcast or wherever it is you listen to podcasts, uh, that we'd really appreciate that as well. It apparently helps those who may not be familiar with us to more easily find the show. Huge thanks to everyone who's already taken the few seconds to do that for us. Feedback is brought to you by Clawhammer Supply, who in addition to having a remarkable YouTube channel chock full of great brewing-related content, sell what we believe to be uh, some of the best electric brewing systems 
systems on the market. If you've been considering making the move from propane to electric, you owe it to yourself to at least check out what Clawhammer Supply has. Uh, whether you're after a 120-volt 5-gallon unit or something bigger like their powerful 240-volt 10-gallon system, Clawhammer has got you covered. Learn more about everything they have to offer at clawhammersupply.com. And don't forget to check out their YouTube channel as well. Listener Eric Barkley wrote in with feedback after listening to our recent experience episode on brewing in the modern age. Eric said, I brewed my first batch with my uncle back in the early 80s when the only thing available, at least where I lived, was canned extract with the little yeast pack under the lid. I've seen those a few times in the wild, but not very often. Uh, He says, I'm pretty sure it was already pre-hopped as well. To my memory, these beers weren't very good, but we drank them anyway. We made a few more batches like that over the next 10 years, which is when I got more involved and switched to using extract with the steeping grains uh, and my beers got better. I was one of the few people who was brewing all grain in the 90s on a three-tier fly sparge setup. It, it took an entire it took up an entire garage space but the beers improved even more. I even started winning some awards. As I've gotten older the old rig became too much for me to handle so with some hesitation I switched to brew in a bag. This was seven or eight years ago and despite my initial concern my initial concerns I can comfortably say that the beers I'm making today are some of my best yet. All of that to say it's been quite Quite interesting to observe how homebrewing has evolved in the 40 years I've been doing it, and I'm glad I was open-minded enough to try something new or to try some new things out uh, because it's working great for me. What an awesome story uh, from a listener of the show about the evolution that they've experienced over 40 years of brewing. I mean, he's got to be one of the OGs uh, in our listener group, Will. No, that's a crazy long time to be brewing. And that episode you guys did was awesome. Um, the the whole comment about the homemade uh, immersion chillers and how like hack job they are. I'm pretty sure I have one in my garage still that just looks like somebody coiled some copper coils around uh, you know a kettle or something. But yeah, that that's awesome. You know, I think that uh, chronicles even people that have been brewing for 40 years, like the last 10 or 15 years. You know, you kind of get the extract kit, and then you do the extract with the steeping grains, and you get a little bit better. Um, the three tier. Uh, fly sparge system that's amazing man i i don't know how you had the the intuition and patience because <laughs> you had to build all that that's what people don't understand like you couldn't just go buy a fly sparge system nope you know 20 years ago you had to go build all that stuff and so um but i'm glad you settled on brewing a bag i think that's a much more relaxing much more easygoing brew day and i think that uh, you know i don't use brewing a bag but i use kind of the the basket and the all-in-one uh but you know i think it produces a really nice quality beer and i haven't noticed any difference but uh awesome i'm glad glad to hear your story glad to, to chronicle through that all and man congrats on brewing for 40 years yeah i th- totally congrats that's amazing i'm at 20 years ju- uh, or jordan uh who was on that show with me on that episode with me he's been brewing for i think he said 13 years or so you th- you think about that you got 13 versus 20 and now eric with 40 i mean this hobby has not stopped evolving and it just makes me so curious to think about where we're going to be in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years you know i mean we've the 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 expansion of electric brewing rigs for people to be able to brew inside or in their garage without as much hassle or having to build a setup i just think it's so cool. And I've, I've got some other friends who have been brewing for about as long as Eric, who tell me basically the same story. I mean, they were going and getting hopped extract that they would just blend with hot water and pitch yeast in. And that was home brewing. And so, you know, you think about when they started the thoughts they must have about watching what home brewing has become. And the fact so many people are jumping directly into all grain. I just think it's super rad. And Eric, it's awesome. Uh, you know, that not only did you change your approach, but 
you know, your brewing is now easier and you're making beers that you feel are better than what you were making before. And I think that is, you know, the proof is in the pudding and that's what matters the most. So I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. If you have show feedback, you can send it to feedback at brewlosophy.com or leave us a note on social media. All righty. When we return from this break, answers to your questions. After a long brew day, the last thing I want to do is waste more time chilling wort. I've tried so many different options, and ultimately, I settled on the super-efficient immersion chillers made by Jaded Brewing. With the King Cobra and Hydra, I'm able to chill my entire batch of wort, from boiling to just a few degrees above groundwater temperature, in as little as six minutes. If an immersion chiller is right for your brewery, then do yourself a favor and check out all of the rad options Jaded Brewing has to offer at jadedbrewing.com. And be sure to let them know Brewlosophy sent you. As every brewer knows, the best beer requires the best hops, which Yakima Valley Hops provides fresh from the source to brewers around the world, carrying everything from classics like Cascade to modern favorites like Galaxy and Mosaic, as well as other ingredients and gear, Yakima Valley Hops has it all. And don't forget to check out their new podcast, The Late Edition, where the YVH crew goes into depth on our favorite plant with industry experts. Head over to YakimaValleyHops.com now to see all they have to offer and subscribe to The Late Edition wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. Huge thanks to everybody who submitted questions for this round of Bruin A. Our list continues to grow. So if we don't get to a question that you submitted, chances are we will in a future episode. All right. First question comes from listener Adam Reynolds. He says, how do I spund a triple for natural carbonation in a keg and make sure it's at the correct serving pressure? I'm trying to do this without forced carbonation, if at all possible. Okay. So spunding for those of you... uh I'm sure most of our listeners already know what spunding is, but for those of you that may not be keeping track of this at home, spunding is kind of the act of uh, at some point in time during fermentation when there's a few degrees plate left to go, um, you either pull the airlock or put it into a keg, and then you let the continued fermentation um, build up pressure and put CO2 into solution. Um, so this is kind of a, a, a tough question because a lot of this is based off of experience with your system. I'm sure uh, you know you could you could sponge your beer or, or transfer it with, you know, 10 or so points left to go and, and see where you can get. But, you know, based on some carbonation charts, you know, if you're going to carb a beer at, at fermentation temperature, you're going to need to put about 22, 30 PSI in solution. So when you cool it off, it'll kind of 
actually be carbonated. I don't I don't think I'm too far off on that when I'm looking at carbonation charts, but it's a lot of pressure you need at room temperature to to get CO2 to go into solution. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of the, the easy button here is you get about halfway through fermentation, you put a spun valve on and set it to that high, but you're going to need a, a vessel that can hold that much pressure, which not every vessel can. And, uh, you know, I, I think, a, an alternative here, which is what I would probably suggest doing if you're into kegging or any of this is I would probably keg condition because then you have a little bit more control over some of the levers you're doing to add carbonation. But that's, that's just me. If you're not trying to force carbonate at all. Yeah. So, and and just to delineate this even even more, the diff. So, with spunding, you are typically using what is referred to, understandably, as a spunding valve, uh, which you can set the pressure uh, in a vessel so that when it surpasses, when that vessel builds up to the your set point, it will start relieving the pressure while maintaining uh, the psi that is in that vessel. Uh, when you're doing natural conditioning or natural carbonation in the keg, you're treating it more like you would bottle conditioning where you're, where you're fully fermenting out. Oh, and that's a point too, it's spunding. You're trying to catch it towards the end of fermentation where you're not adding in any priming sugar. So what you're doing is it's still ferment- fermenting, me- meaning it's still producing CO2. You put this spunding valve on to capture that CO2 and naturally carbonate the beer. Whereas with natural carbonation, you're adding priming sugar in the same way you would with bottle conditioning. I'm with you, uh, particularly for a triple, which is supposed to be pretty highly carbonated, that may actually make it a little bit easier to experiment with because overcarbonation is very easy to fix. Um, So I I have a proposal. I've never spunded a triple, but I've done some spunding in my day. And so I have a little bit of a proposal. But before I get there, I'm with with you, Will. I'd ferment the whole thing out and then just use a calculator to determine the, the priming sugar amount that I need, add that to the the fermented beer in the keg cap that off right you're so you're not releasing the pressure and just kind of let it do its thing over a week or two before chilling it down and starting to drink it uh, i've done that many times and it works really well it's very predictable the amount of carbonation you're going to get when naturally conditioning in the keg now if i really wanted to spun a triple my what i would probably do is about 2 or 3 days into fermentation when there's still going to be maybe another 24 hours or so left of more heavy fermentation i would go ahead and put this i would only do this in a keg by the way i wouldn't do this in anything other than a keg just for safety's sake uh, but i'd go ahead and put the spunding valve on and i'd crank it up to about as high as those the the valve will let you go my spunding valves are low pressure valves they're not the high pressure valves that i use in my kegerator so i think they cap out at something like 30 psi and so what i would do is set it to about 25 psi um, so it's relieving pressure as it surpasses that 25 psi and i have no problems popping on a, um, you know, a, um, a Cobra tap or something like that, a picnic tap and taking samples. And I would sa- start sampling after about 12 hours. Once you hit the carbonation level that you like, you can then change the spunding valve to your quote serving pressure or something a little bit lower so that it's relieving more of that pressure, but still keeping pressure on the beer. And then the nice thing is once you get that keg into your free, into your keyser or kegerator, or even if you're just storing it in a bucket of ice, you have to have something to push the beer out with. And that amount of CO2 could be just enough to make minor adjustments to the level of carbonation if you're not happy with it. If you overcarb, which is definitely something that can happen, 
All you have to do is relieve the pressure and let that let the pressure build up again, relieve it all the way, let it build up again until it's where you want it to be. That might take a day or two, but uh, it, but it works. You're not gonna you know, you don't you're not your beer's not dead if it's overcarbonated. So again, natural conditioning with priming sugar a little bit more predictable, a little bit easier in my opinion, particularly for something as big and sparkly as a triple. But you can definitely get away with spending it as well. I, is there anything I missed there, Will? In my in my proposal. No, I, I just think it's a lot of pressure, um, 30 PSI, because I'm with you. Definitely, for sure, for safety's sake, make sure you're in a keg or something that can handle well over 30 PSI of pressure. Yeah. And it's going to be a bit of a dance to try to figure out, you know, how, how much fermentation needs to be left to get up to that much pressure in the, the fermentation vessel. So, um, so I, it, it's a bit of a dance. I, again, I think with if you did the keg conditioning method where you added sugar into the keg to kind of prime it and let it ferment from there might be a little bit more controllable. Um, but, you know, let us know what you find out and let us know what your experience says. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the next question is from Dick Wallace, uh, you know, and he's asking us a question like we're not going to go have a beer tomorrow or something. Come on, Dick. Uh, what, what is your favorite homebrew hack? For example, I rigged my first immersion chiller to be connected to a recirculating pump when brewing indoors. Just toss the pump in the kitchen sink full of ice so it can be connected to the garden hose when I decide to brew outdoors. Each end just has a different adapter to accommodate the brew day. So these kinds of questions stump me nowadays because I feel like all of the hacks I came up with uh, uh, were like 10 years ago and I've used all of them so often that they don't feel like hacks anymore. I've written about them. I've shared them with people. So I don't really have anything too clever that I don't think people are already aware of, uh, if that makes sense. So for example, what I would have said, you know, 10 years ago is harvesting yeast from starters saves you money. It's clean. It's a lot easier that if you're concerned about, you know, yeast cleanliness, it's a lot cleaner than harvesting yeast from the bottom, you know, from your, from your tube, from the bottom of the fermenter. So that was a hack that I was a big fan of. There was a minute there where I was preheating when I was still uh, uh, brewing with propane where I, I would, uh, I built a heat stick, just a regular 100, 120 volt, you know, I think it was a 1500 watt heat stick that I could pop into water and put on a smart timer, <laughs> you know, a smart plug. And then I would set my water to start heating with the heat stick, uh, at like four in the morning for, so that it would, when I woke up in the morning, it would be pretty much to strike temp. That was a hack that saved me about an hour of, you know, 45 minutes of time or so. So those are, those are like the, the one that I think are the, the the most clever and most helpful, but I haven't come up with anything in a while. I mean, you know, kitchen sink with full of ice that I've done that before in the past, but it's not something I use regularly. Yeah, I think the latest thing I've been doing kind of more in the last year or so is I think the uh, the Topo Chico bottle with a carb cap is kind of a, a great hack to add things like finings or tinctures or any other liquid you want to add to the beer without introducing oxygen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's been talked about on the show before. It's not anything groundbreaking, but I think it's a great hack, uh, you know. You just take a Topo Chico or San Pellegrino bottle and you can buy like a stainless steel carb cap or a plastic one off Amazon and then uh, make sure to put a little bit of a dip tube in it. But, you know, you, you take your gelatin and you put the gelatin solution in there. And then if you have your cap loose on top, you can kind of purge that whole bottle with CO2 and then tighten it down and pressurize it. And then now when you put a little jumper going between the uh, the Topo Chico bottle and the keg, you can just relieve a little bit on the PRV valve and just, you know, you go from an area of high concentration to low concentration and it sucks all your gelatin straight into the keg without introducing much in the way of oxygen. Um, 
you know, and that's pretty cool. If you have tinctures or there's anything else you need to add to your beer, maybe you want to make some mineral adjustments. So you just do some distilled water and some minerals and swirl it around and, and pop them in there. Um, but I, that, that's a pretty good little hack that I've, uh, I don't use it all the time because it's kind of an extra thing to have around and clean, but uh, it's something I definitely like to keep in my pocket. Yeah, I actually remember, it must have been five or six years ago now, uh, right around the beginning of the of the Brewlosophy podcast, in fact, somebody sent us in some feedback with photos of how he does exactly what you're talking about, Will. And it, it's funny because it makes perfect sense um, how it would work. And it, it it's one of the, that's what I love about this is that I never would have thought about that had he not uh, shared that with me. And now, you know, it's, it's cool to hear that, that you're doing that. It also made me think of probably my favorite hack because I absolutely hate having to drive down to the, to the welding shop to get CO2 when I run out. It's the reason I have four CO2 tanks. Uh, but, but where I have to drive is about a 20 minute drive each way, which I'm not a fan of. So, uh, being able to, to purge the serving keg, right, with naturally produced CO2. So I create this kind of jumper keg where I first fill the keg with sanitizer and I connect that keg to the out of the fermenter so that CO2 is pushing that uh, um, sanitizer water out of that keg into another keg. Um, and now you've got this, you know, at the end of fermentation, it produces f- more than enough CO2 to push all of that sanitizer out. Now you've got a completely oxygen free keg that you just purge the CO2 from before filling in a closed transfer setup. And you've got completely oxygen free transfers. Well, as oxygen free as we're able to achieve on the homebrew scale. So that's probably my favorite hack because it saves me money. Um, and in a way it kind of saves me time because I don't have to go through the whole purging process on kegging day. So there you have it, Dick. I'm sure there are a million other act, uh, hacks out there. And in fact, this question uh, inspired me to, yeah, I, I think it would be really neat to get a list of awesome hacks from our listeners and maybe uh, just talk about those in a future episode, just all the cool hacks that our listeners have come up with to ease their brew day. So uh, next question comes from Jeremy Hunter, patron and listener of the show, who says, I made a decent porter, beautiful ruby glow in the light, plenty of head, but lack of retention. This time around, I made a slight modification by using 3.7% wheat malt. I mean, that is not very much, uh, which drastically improved head retention. I had an otherwise empty glass retain a quarter inch layer of foam at the bottom for an hour might have lasted longer. However, this also definitely made it hazy. What do you recommend? Reduce the wheat malt or replace it with something else? I'm concerned that using gelatin findings might impact head retention by removing proteins. So this reminds me of a beer that I sent you, Marshall, for the boys to review. It was the oatmeal stout episode for the uh, average views, and and I had a an, o- an oatmeal stout that I could not get to clear up. It was just a murky mess, but it did have a lovely cap of foam on top of it. And I don't recall using wheat in that beer. Um, so I, I'm curious if there's anything else that's changed because I don't know that 3.7 percent of wheat malt's really gonna affect your clarity that much batch to batch. Maybe you just had an unlucky batch. Uh, I'm curious if you might have like changed what your base malt is. Cause I know typically with some of these craft malt, stirs with the base malt like um you know there's a lot more protein content kind of going towards that hazy ipa kind of thing so i kind of wonder if you went to a craft maltster instead of a, a macro maltster's malt for your your base malt um you know i don't, I don't think that that much wheat's really going to affect it but either way 
I wouldn't hesitate to add gelatin if your clarity is that important to you. I don't know that it's going to affect your head retention that much. And, you know, but, you know, if you're worried about it, if it tastes good and, and you like it, then just drink it. But, you know, I wouldn't be concerned about adding gelatin to that. I don't think it'll affect your head retention, really. No. Yeah. Um, since you ended on that, I'll start with there's a few things I want to hit on with this question because I think it, it, it there's a lot here. Uh, but since you ended with the gelatin thing, uh, Jeremy, I am I am there are a few things I'm as confident about. Uh, uh, as I am, that gelatin doesn't do what a lot of people fear it does <laughs> when you use it in beer. Um, yes, it's going to pull out proteins. Um, it's not you're you're not going to lose head retention. I have used gelatin hundreds of times in everything from Kolsch and Pilsner all the way up to double IPA and and stouts and all of that, uh, and it works perfectly fine. I've never personally noticed any impact whatsoever on body mouthfeel or, or foam uh, production and retention. It doesn't seem to have any negative impacts. And one might argue that some of the stuff, which I don't know what it all is, I'm not going to pretend I do, but some of the stuff that gelatin uh, precipitates out of beer or helps to get out of that beer may actually be foam negative stuff. Uh, in my experience, particularly with, with even slightly hoppier styles, American Pale Ale all the way up through IPA, all the different types of IPA, when I find it with gelatin, I find that the the foam tends to be more dense and creamy. Um, again, that's anecdote. That being said, we've done many, many experiments, and we are going to do even many more experiments on uh, finding with different post-fermentation findings, including gelatin. Um, and in those, we always take a photo of the beers side by side. Well, when we're taking those photos, we are making observations as well. What's going on? We have never noticed that a beer find with gelatin has any uh, impact on the foam quality at, at all. So that again, mostly anecdote, a little bit of data, but, but make of that what you will. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting about this question is that Jeremy is talking about a porter and old school that I am. I remember back in the day, you know, when it was really cool, if a home brewer could make a, a, a clear beer. Now everybody's making hazy beer on purpose, but way back then, 15, 20 years ago, uh, that all the talk was, well, it, that only matters if it's a beer that you can see the clarity anyways. If it's a dark beer, a porter, a stout, don't even worry about it. There's something I really appreciate about the fact that people are talking about clarity, even in opaque, darkly opaque beers. Uh, I personally think it's important because I don't want that other stuff getting in the way of the flavor of the beer. And so I absolutely fine my dark beers with gelatin. Do I think that 3.7% wheat malt is responsible for the head retention you're talking about? No, I don't think it's responsible for that at all. In fact, uh, I, I I don't think that 10% would necessarily help your the foam quality as much as a lot of people claim that it does. That's a personal opinion based on uh, heaps of personal experiences using wheat malt. Um, I, I have a feeling that it could have been something that, that had to do with your water. Perhaps it was a different, like, like you said, will a different base malt or even different, um, uh, different, different specialty malts. I know that roasted grains, uh, tend to have a, a can have, some of them can have a foam positive impact on beer as well. So, uh, you're asking, you know, should you replace the wheat malt or, or I, I say keep the wheat malt if you thought the beer was good. I don't think you're tasting the wheat malt and I doubt it's 3.7% even having an impact on your foam or body or mouthfeel or anything like that. Now, if you wanted to move into something that I, I have personally perceived as having quite the impact on body and 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 mouthfeel, not so much on foam retention, I don't think, but uh, rye malt, uh, very the beta glucan level in rye malt is absolutely higher than what you're going to find in wheat malt or barley malt and it will uh, come through. If you use about ten percent, you're you're gonna you're gonna get that uh, mouthfeel difference, and I don't think it tastes spicy or anything. So, 
make beer clear again. <laughs> okay, Lucas Medina. Um, he says, I'm not getting any younger. In fact, none of us are. My liver is not as efficient as it used to be. I took some time recently to study how the human body processes ethanol and reacts to it in the hope of finding secret ingredient I could add to the beer to minimize hangover effects. Unfortunately, I don't have any answer. Other than eating well and keeping yourself hydrated, I wonder if the philosophy crew could add to this discussion. I mean, this question really is how do you deal with hangovers? That's how I'm interpreting this because we know, you know, science minded as we are, there's no magical uh, uh, cure for a hangover, at least in my opinion. But there are things that I enjoy doing to deal with hangovers. I happen to be blessed with whatever genetic makeup, uh, you know, leads to not so rough hangovers. Uh, I think I've had one in the last year that I would call a hangover and I've, I've tied them on a few times in the last year. So it's, you know, I have the the ability to deal with it. Now, one thing my wife pointed out, uh, when we're out partying or doing what we're doing, camping, uh, I make it very, very intentionally. I make it a point to drink a lot of water and I happen to love flavored sparkling water. So it's very easy for me if I've had two or three beers to go grab a sparkling water and drink that or chug a bottle of, of regular water. And I think that I think that's the secret sauce right there. Just keep yourself hydrated like you said, Lucas. But if I happen to go a little overboard and get <laughs> I wake up with a, a raging headache and I feel like I'm going to puke, you know, five hours after waking up. Uh, my go-to is pho. I absolutely love Vietnamese pho and I make it as hot as I can, as hot as I can handle uh, because I have this stupid, you know, I, I know it's a myth belief that we can sweat out the hangover, you know. So if I make it hot, I put a blanket on and I just watch a show. Uh, you know, with the volume down a little bit so it's not <laughs> making my headache worse uh, and eating that pho. That's what does it for me. So um, I, I don't think there's any foolproof method, as you said. Now, I, I do know that we react differently to alcohol in a fasted state. So so drinking on an empty stomach, uh, not such a great idea. You produce lots of nasty things that can give you worse hangovers. Uh, I mean, it does get you messed up quicker, but it can it can cause worse <laughs> hangovers. Uh, so, um, so I think like uh, what you do ahead of time is is almost more important than what you do the morning after. Like hydration is awesome, eating is awesome. Uh, over New Year's, we kind of tied a few on several days in a row with some friends, and um, you know the liquid IV powder oh, yeah. that you add to water. That stuff replenishes electrolytes, um, and that's a great way to kind of make sure that you're you're keeping your body hydrated. Uh, and besides electrolytes, it's what plants crave and by getting some electrolytes before drinking, that really helps. And then if I'm being uh, really good, I'm pounding a glass of water between each drink. Uh, and then, you know, the next morning, uh, you know, hair of the dog, 50% of the time it works all the time. So, uh, <laughs> Amen. you know, if, if you if you can rock that, rock it. Uh, if you can't rock that, I also find that liquid IV the next morning does help. Uh, if you're if you got a sour stomach, though, and things are just really bad, um, maybe your doctor has prescribed you Zofran and that that's kind of helpful. But I'm not asking you to abuse your uh, medication. I'm just saying that, that Zofran's a nice thing for uh, a lousy stomach <laughs> for nausea. Yeah, my, my wife takes another over the counter nausea med if she overdoes it. It starts with the N. I forget what it's called, though. Um, but yeah, there's that out there. If I'm feeling woozy, uh, my first thing is I'll take three Tums and try to see if that allows me to at least get some food in my stomach. Uh, and the other thing, I'm not a big fan. I live in California. You know, There are people in California who absolutely love In-N-Out Burger. Uh, I don't get it, but, but when I'm hungover, it is like that is the only thing that I crave. 
There's something about like the the greasy burger flavor that doesn't that always sits well with me, even if I'm not feeling like eating anything else. So, uh, but yes, like you said, I think getting some food in there. I've had friends who will like come over and they're like, "Hurry, hurry! I need to drink something real quick. I haven't had anything to eat in four hours. I want it to hit hard." I'm like, "Dude, that would make me feel gross," you know. So I'm a I'm a stay hydrated, eat good food, and my wife is single handedly keeping Liquid IV in business. I promise you, she is. She drinks those things every single day. She loves it. Um, they do seem to help. I'm not sure what the science is behind, you know, how well they work, but Hey, it doesn't taste bad. And you can, I think there's like a pineapple flavor that has caffeine in it. That works really well too. Um, and I'm a big fan of caffeinating, uh, quite highly, uh, if I'm feeling hungover to kind of knock me out of that tired liquid IV is cheap as a Costco, by the way, you can go buy them in bulk and it's a lot cheaper there than if you go buy it at some other places. So yes, still not cheap, but, uh, definitely not definitely the best you're going to find is at Costco. That's where we get ours as well. So thank you for the question, Lucas. Uh, next one comes from Bill Lammers who says since episode 200, Oh boy, this is another one like Dick's question. What are the best slash worst slash most impactful slash least helpful brewing gadgets slash techniques slash ingredients that you've come across or engaged in consider this a best slash worst sort of thing in the last 100 episodes or two-ish years oh boy wow okay so this is a lot to think about since episode 200 was about august of 2021 i believe if i go to the way way back machine and so um to think about what's happened in the last two and a half three years that's a lot i don't know that i'm that reflective in general um but but things i've really um adopted in that time frame and keep keep using like like duotite like duotite and eva barrier tubing for all my keg lines all my stuff i think duotite as my buddy uh kurt says it's the lego for beer because you can <laughs> just build whatever you want out of this stuff and it's amazing um i know lupamax came out in 2020 but the the lupamax 2021 is when they really expanded a lot of their crops that's a product that i still continue to use really like think it's great um you know, some of the things that I think are, uh, you know, I, I guess lactic acid producing yeast has been kind of a novel and interesting thing that's hung around, uh, especially sour VCA. And then then some other things that, not that I, I, I don't like them or think they're faddish, but I think you don't hear as much about Kvike anymore. Um, I think I think kind of that craze of Kvike's kind of worn off a little bit. They're, they're still a strain or two out there that I, I have fun playing with every now and again when I, when I have time to. But uh, I think Kvike's one of those things that's kind of a fad that's kind of come and gone and um, you know, so I, other than that, I, I can't think of, of much anything else to talk about in this realm. Yeah, there's, um, I mean, two years isn't that long. Um, I feel like it was just yesterday. I mean, we've been doing this, the podcast almost eight years now, and, uh, we're coming up on our 10th year, uh, uh next month, God, in what three weeks will officially hit the 10 year mark, a full decade of doing brewlosophy. So two years is, is kind of a drop in the bucket at this point. Um, I, on my notes, surprisingly, and we did not consult about this beforehand, Duotite and Eva, EVA barrier uh, lines were probably, th- th- that was topping my list because I just love how easy it makes swapping and or cleaning your beer line if you need to do that. Um, God, the, the yeah, Kvike is, has, seems to have fallen off of the popular bandwagon. I know people who are still using it, but it's not really as nearly as popular as it used to be in terms of ingredients, my without a doubt, uh, favorite new ingredient, like you said, will is Lupo max hops. If I could use Lupo max in every 
variety. That's all I would use. I love how it results in less trube in the bottom of my fermentation vessel. And there's a quality to it that is just so pungent that I love. Um, God, what are some things I stopped using? This was more than two years ago, but uh, I know that all of you guys really like your digital refractometers. I I wasn't a big fan of it. Um, So I ended up, I think I ended up giving it away to somebody during a giveaway or something like that. I forget. Um, So I wasn't a huge fan of that. Um, There are... It's just easier to take pictures, Marshall. That's the only reason I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Your mandate to take all these photos for our photo blog, if you will. Uh, Yeah. That's understandable. Uh, There was another one that that somebody was talking about recently. Oh, the the digital refract... Not the digital refractometers, but the... uh, I don't even know what they're called. They're like the floating hydrometers. There's a a myriad brands out there who make these. I like the the tilt or the wrapped or the the, those kinds of things yeah yeah exactly uh you know i've had a lot of feedback from people who are saying man i've been trying to tweak this thing so that it's accurate and i struggled to do that though somebody did just reach out and tell me that apparently tilt uh made some changes that have made it far more accurate and easier to use if that's the case you know more power to you cool uh one thing that i think is interesting and and we have not talked about this on the show at all i don't think is this whole move do you do, do you recall a few months ago when plato um basically it sounds like they're just stopping all of their home brewing side stuff uh, so all the stuff that they had sold to home brewers that cost quite a bit of money um and they were it was like a an airlock that that it uses the flow of uh co2 out of the airlock to determine your og and fg and stuff or when uh, you know attenuation i Apparently, they stopped completely uh, dealing with homebrewers on all that stuff. I think that's kind of a bummer. So they're phasing it out. Um, I, I think they still have some support until I forget when, um, and they could have already ended. Um, but the thing that they also made that my my buddy, Kurt, who I referred to earlier about Duotite, he has the ones that are like these weights that you are like scales that you put your kegs on top of. And so it actually calculates how much beer is left in your keg. And so you have like an app that kind of like, tells you how much you know if you how many like liters or pints you have left in your keg and, and those are actually really cool they're kind of pricey and when they went on sale because they were going out of business i'm like no this is, doesn't seem like something i want to invest in <laughs> yeah that that'd be, that'd be me too uh I, I thought of one more thing uh and i guess we'll end it on this is and i think this might have been a little over two years ago maybe three-ish years ago but uh brew father i mean my gosh you know a lot of us were using other brewing calculators and again if if your preference is for another one by all means, keep using it. That's great that it's working for you. But the user interface, the ease of use, the fact that you have access to your, all of your recipes all the time, I can't recommend Brewfather more. I absolutely love uh, love that that program. I guess it's more than just an app. You can download the app, but it's actually like an, an online app as well. Uh, but it's all synced. And so you open up your Brewfather app, you get access to everything that you designed on the, on the internet and vice versa. I love it. It's awesome. So, well, that is uh, the, what we've got for our first segment. We do have to take a short break. We're going to be right back with more Brew and A after these messages. There's no denying that stainless steel is the best material for brewing equipment, and Delta Brewing Systems offers some of the lowest prices on high-quality stainless gear, like the Firm Tank, which in addition to holding 8 gallons or 30 liters of work, comes with a domed lid to even further reduce the chances of a messy blow-off. Plus, it can hold up to 4 PSI of pressure for closed transfers. Delta Brewing Systems also has their own line of brew kettles as well as one of the lowest-priced all-in-one electric brewing systems out there, and their prices are shockingly low. If you're in the market for legit stainless gear that won't break the bank, do yourself a favor and head over to DeltaBrewingSystems.com today. 
Chilling work can be a chore, especially after a long brew day, but not with the Extrillerator Counterflow Chiller, which can chill a 5-gallon or 19-liter batch of wort in 5 minutes or less, leading to a strong cold break and clearer wort in the fermenter. Brewlosophy's Matt Del Fiaco uses the Extrillerator Max and absolutely loves it. In addition to improved chilling efficiency, every Extrillerator comes with a 5-year warranty that covers the entire chiller for manufacturer defects. If you're looking to up your chilling game and a CFC is right for you, head over to Extrillerator.com today. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. All right, time to answer some more questions. Go ahead and kick off this round, Will. So the next question is from uh, Camilo, who's a patron, and he says, I'm looking to speed up my learning by bringing more batches more often, but five gallons is just too much beer. What equipment setup do you recommend so that I can brew maybe one to two gallon batches? Any recommendations? Oh, so many recommendations. <laughs> uh, five gallons, too much beer, boy. I, that's too little beer. You know what I'm saying? No, I know exactly what you're talking about, Camillo. That The five gallons when you want to brew more often absolutely is a lot of beer. It's part of the reason we started getting rid of it and doing these experiments. That was one of the things that motivated me was I had all this beer on hand. I might as well do something meaningful with it. Uh, I absolutely uh, have some recommendations for you. And there are various ways you can go about doing this. And it sort of depends on your budget and your interest in the hobby. Um, First off, if you have the ability to, or if you already have a all-in-one electric brewing system, they're going to cost you probably, I mean, definitely going to cost you more than this other idea that that I'll recommend here in a minute. Because they're all-in-one, they're electric, they have everything built in, there's usually pumps in them of some kind, Uh, they have have monitors, you can set your mash temp and it'll just stay there. And the nice thing is, if you're cool with doing full-volume mashes, you can get away with doing a two- or three-gallon full-volume mash in some of these systems, uh, and 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 just be done with it and have it all in this one you know this one kettle electric kettle. I think that's pretty rad. Uh, if you're not going to go that route and you're looking to to kind of piecemeal a setup together, I've done this many many times. It's, in fact, it's the way that I recommend. Uh, anytime somebody asks me about getting into home brewing, my suggestion for them is we can hook you up with this very you know, simple and relatively inexpensive setup that is brewing a bag um, that you can do on your stovetop because it's such a small volume. uh, And you're probably going to make beer that right off the bat, your first batch, if somebody's helping you, of course, that's going to taste almost as good as something somebody who's a little bit more experienced would be making at five gallon or 10 gallon batches. So all you need is a four gallon kettle, which you can go to Walmart and get for about 15 or 20 bucks. It can be aluminum. It can be stainless. It doesn't matter. And then you need a brew in a bag, uh, a bag. So the fabric filter, if you happen to have or what would prefer to have a, you know, a stainless option, you can get online. There are multiple places that sell stainless baskets that will fit inside these kettles. And it does the same thing as a bag. You just can't squeeze it. And that's not that big of a deal. Now you've got the kettle and you've got your loudering system, which is this bag or this basket. You go out and you buy a recipe. All you need is something to ferment it in. Um, if you're doing one-gallon batches, you can easily find a one to one and a half gallon, you know, uh, juice bottle or something that you've cleaned and sanitized really well, and you plop a cheap two-dollar, three-dollar airlock on the top of that. 
for your fermentation. Now, so it's really, this is the way I wish pe- more people would think about brewing is that you don't have to go out and get this convoluted, complex, you know, continuous sparge system or build a huge, you know, even, even cooler mash tun. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You can mash right on your stove, cover it up with some blankets. Um, if you're looking for to, to promote something that is no longer around, even though our, our good friend Chip is doing his own thing with Chop and Brew, if you go back and look at some of the old brewing TV episodes, they do that quite a bit, actually, the smaller batch stuff. They really talk about it a bunch. Our friends over at Basic Brewing Radio, again, big, big proponents of small batch brewing. Listen to some of their episodes. Maybe even reach out to James um, because he has a lot of experience doing this. The batches that I've made using that brew in a bag method, uh, which it it would take way too long for me to detail every aspect of it, but with a little four-gallon kettle. In fact, it was the first kettle I bought with my first brew kit way back in 2003. I've made multiple batches on my stovetop two-gallon batches, and it works perfect. There's no issues at it, uh, with it whatsoever. You might start your mash at 156 or so, do a half-hour mash. It might drop down to 152. No big deal. you know. And then you're just removing those grains, boiling it, adding your hops, pitching your yeast. It's all good. Uh, so I am not familiar with this concept of too much beer, but you know, <laughs> that's that's just me. Um, so one thing I want to start off with, because you did talk about the electric all-in-ones briefly, um, you really want to look at the specs on those, because some of some of the more popular ones that are designed for like five-gallon batches, they may have a minimum amount of liquid that they need inside of there. And there's also kind of a dead space between some of the malt pipe baskets and the bottom of where the burner is. So just make sure that dead space and everything has enough to like kind of suture needs because it, it may not you may have to get either someone one that's thought out for smaller batches or just make sure that it's it sits low enough to where you can actually get your grains in contact with water for sure um but what i would say is i think what marshall hit a head on uh stovetop brew in a bag again four or five gallon pot uh you know a, a mesh filter bag and then i know a lot of people in the brew club that are doing it that way and if you have five gallon kegs guess what now you have fermentation vessels uh, you have unitanks. You can do whatever you want to with those. And and with a two-gallon batch, you know, a, a five-gallon keg or a, a three-gallon keg, those would be super simple and relatively cheap stainless steel fermenters uh, for this process if you want to go that way. Or like Marshall said, you you know, you can get some uh, much more cost-effective glass options or, or polyurethane options. But, um, but if you already have the kegs, then go ahead and use them. And you can, if you still have five-gallon kegs and you're going to use your kegerator or whatever, I don't know that you keg or not, maybe you bottle, um, you know, you can keep using those five-gallon kegs for packaging. You just do the same thing. CO2 purge, put your two gallons of beer in there. And guess what? It's just going to carb up twice as fast. <laughs> yeah. And it, it does. A lot of people will say, no, it doesn't, you know, carbonation time is not a function of, uh, you know, volume. It absolutely is. In my experience, uh, you, I carbonated, uh, a two gallon batch in a five gallon keg, uh, at, I think it was 20 PSI and it was carbonated within like eight hours. It was wild and it was nicely carbonated. So, uh, one last comment to Camillo on this one, especially cause you're a patron though. We are, we are offering this to anyone listening to this show. If you really want want to learn more about uh, small batch brewing from somebody who has done it a lot, feel free to hit up Martin at brewlosophy.com, uh, the host of the Brewlosophy show. Remember that before we you know, brought him over to Brewlosophy, he was doing his own thing called the Homebrew Challenge, which started with him brewing every beer in the BJCP, uh, and he did it. And so not all of those were five-gallon batches. He did a lot of small batch brewing, so he has the answers for you and could probably make some recommendations that Will and I may have missed. 
So thank you for the question, Camillo. Next one comes from Duke Osterberry. He says, with the amount of time spent on avoiding cold side oxidation, amen, I had a pesky thought pop into my head when kegging a few weeks ago. Nearly all beer tubing options at the homebrew retailers are clear lines. I've toured enough commercial breweries and always see stainless piping or that flexible opaque gray tubing. It's obvious a commercial setting has longer runs, but it got me thinking. My brewery is in my basement, but my stainless fermenters are by a window. One day while kegging, light was beaming directly into the clear transfer line. I proceeded to block the window with cardboard like some sort of sick freak. I've not noticed an issue in my beers, but I am a home brewer after all. Plus, drinking beer from a clear glassware outside in the summer, I feel like it's almost seconds before any beer turns skunky. Any thoughts on this? Do you use clear or opaque lines? So, so first of all, anyone that wants to try this, uh, I think Marshall, you've talked about this before, but, but pour a beer, a hoppy one, and then, you know, set one in the shade outside, set one out in the sun outside. And you don't have to do it for very long, literally a matter of like seconds, seconds. minutes. Yeah. And, and you bring them back together and one will smell skunky. Yep. So, so sun and light struck beer is totally a thing to worry about. Now, um, what I use to transfer liquid is the EVA barrier tubing. Um, I think you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, it's clear. Uh, I think on our scale, there's a lot of reasons to use clear line. And one of which that I think is kind of important is you can see inside of it. So if it hangs up somewhere and starts growing something, you know, to throw it away. Yes. Or if it gets too messed up, you know, to throw it away. And so, and another reason I like using EVA barriers, it's cheap and it's easy for me to replace. And I don't, I don't think too much about it throwing it away. Now, if I were packaging next to a window with, with clear lines, you know, sure. I, I would, I would probably want to put a curtain or something up there, but I think a cheap curtain from Ikea or Walmart for like 15 bucks, uh, would be a lot cheaper than stainless steel tubing. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, you, you do what you feel like you need to do. I just think that the clear stuff, it's easier to like manage. It's cheaper and it's easier to see if something's going wrong. And a, and a curtain is much cheaper than stainless steel tubing. <laughs> yeah. And a little bit easier. Arguably stainless steel is not very flexible. So not, you, you'd have to be a fixed transfer line. Um, I, you know, this is a, this is a good question. I, one that I don't have any experience thinking about even because my garage does not get direct sunlight ever. Uh, we get one spot that we have a window where right when the sun is setting, there's like a, a two inch space where the sun can shine in over my neighbor's house and like hits the, the top of my garage window. And, but it doesn't like the, the sun never actually hits the ground. So I've never had a concern about that. Um, if so, so the tubing that I use is the cheap vinyl stuff. Uh, I, the reason it, you, you nailed it. Will I want to see everything that's growing in that tubing. If there, it's so cheap that if I see anything that I can't get out with some beer line cleaner or, or, you know, the accelerator beer wash, a brewery wash, if that's there, I'm throwing that tubing out and getting something new. The last thing I want is to, is to waste six hours, you know, brewing, kegging, thinking about a beer only to have it be contaminated because of the transfer line from the fermenter to the keg. Um, I don't use the EVA barrier for that because it's just a hair more expensive than the, the vinyl stuff and the, and the vinyl stuff you can buy in huge, like, you know, a bunch of it at, at a time, hundred feet or so. I think I got a 50 foot roll of it for like 30 bucks and I'm still working on that. Um, I've used the opaque, I believe it's silicone and I really did not like that. Um, they're various, reasons one it tends to have a thicker wall um, and that so it's just a little bit more cumbersome it doesn't fit in my 
tubing drawer as well. I mean, little things like that. But yeah, it, it you know, if the sun were hitting it, given my experience with how fast beer does skunk, I would definitely cover the window. I mean, I would do what you did. I, I don't care if I look like a freak as long as my beer tastes good. Um, yeah, that's that's. I don't know if it's having the impact. I mean, you that beer is flowing as opposed to sitting still. Uh, and when we've done our little skunk experiments, it's always beer in a small glass, right in direct sunlight. You know, no movement for fifteen or so seconds, and you will smell that skunky character. But yeah, I don't. You know, I don't know. I, I would just take extra precaution if it's easy enough to cover the window. You may as well. And just so you know, Marshall, I do buy my EVA barrier line in like 50 to 100 feet at a time. So oh, I did. Just, <laughs> just how I roll. I'm not judging. I'm not judging you, man. <laughs> no, Stop I, judging me, Marshall. <laughs> no, I, I did too. I still have some EVA barrier left. In fact, I before Jersey left town, he got some of my leftover uh, as kind of a going away present. We went and swapped out all of his beer line. Uh, and then before Tim sold his kegerator, we, we did the same thing. So uh, and that was all from one purchase. It's a little more expensive, though. I mean, you know, on the order of 10, 15 bucks, I think. Um, but the vinyl stuff works fine, and you, to me, you can see in it even easier than with the EVA barrier, uh, which has a slight op- opacity to it. So, uh, but yeah, I, I do. I think that your beer could skunk if your line is long enough and you're not running it super fast into the keg. I don't see why it wouldn't, you know, uh, unless the unless the tubing that you're using somehow blocks UV light, which maybe it does. I don't know. That would be interesting. UV light resistant tubing just for keg transfers. But uh, I'm, anyways, I'm pretty sure they have it. Actually, there, I was I'm reading sure about it do. a couple of years ago. So, all right. Well, the next question is from Whiskey Will himself, William Babcock. Uh, I hope you're doing good, buddy. I haven't heard from you a little bit. Hope you're doing good. Um, so he says, I've been binging the podcast for the last few months, and I'm almost caught up. Golf clap. <laughs> After listening to all the Bruinays, I've realized that I have a few non-brewing questions. Unlike some people out there, I fully support and understand why advertising is an important aspect to keeping the show running. Things cost money. Amen to that. Uh-huh. After listening to the one advertisement for Jaded Brewing Chillers over and over again, I kept humming the music as it sounded familiar but couldn't quite place it. Then it hit me. New kids on the block. <laughs> hanging tough. Or at least my middle school recollection of it. So this is my very long way to ask. Do you choose the music for the ad? Do you create your own copy? Or is it given to you by a sponsor? I've been wanting to ask that forever. Also, what DAW do you use? <laughs> Are you a Pro Tools user or some other format? So, Marshall, this is all you, buddy. Yeah, yeah, that's that. Yeah. So, first off, that song is not New Kids on the Block hanging tough. I promise we you. Can't that. afford that. It's not in our budget. <laughs> yeah, we would get. We would get. I mean, I don't know how popular NKOTB would probably never even hear that we stole that from them. Uh, you know, as an aside, I, so I was not a New Kids on the Block fan growing up. My sisters, who are uh, twenty-one months younger than me. Uh, they were definitely New Kids fans, so I know a lot of their songs. Well, my my wife was also a big New Kids on the Block fan, and in the last, what I, I have to say, it was before COVID and then just after COVID uh, ended, kind of ended, I suppose. I've seen New Kids on the Block live twice in the last five or six years. I mean, I'm, I've got to be, that's got to be a record for some guy who never listened to them as a kid, I would imagine. Uh, but You're sick. <laughs> I, I know, I mean, you know, whatever, you know. Throw your shade. I don't mind. Uh, and I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy the concert. It was fun. We, one of them was like a box seat. We got invited by a friend whose boss paid for this crazy setup. Anyways, good times. Uh, that song is not 
by New Kids on the Block. In fact, a good majority of the music, it's kind of a fun story for me to tell, uh, a good majority of the music that we use in both the Brewlosophy podcast and the Brew Lab was created by an old elementary school friend of mine, Mark Gadgetar, uh, who was the drummer. If, if some people out there, I'm sure, have heard of the Blood Brothers. Uh, I'm not sure how to post post hardcore, you know, uh, music, two singers, one kind of screaming, the other singing kind of lower, uh, really great band. He was their drummer. Um, and he's been the drummer and, or it's been a part of multiple groups over the years. Uh, a few of which have more of a hip hop vibe. Um, he also produces music and stuff like that. So I reached out to him, uh, when we were starting up the Brewlosophy podcast and asked him, if he had anything that he'd been working on, if he was cool, if I just kind of took, you know, 30 second cuts from these and he sent me a folder, I mean, just probably 30, 40 things that he had. And the good majority of what you hear on this show and the brew lab was pulled from that. So you have my friend, Mark Gadgetar to thank for that. And if you want to give him some love, you can go check out uh, African tiger, I believe is one of the groups, uh, the blood brothers, of course, I'm sure a lot of you already listen to them. They're great. Um, Google his name. You'll see a list of all the stuff, all the projects that he's been a part of. So thanks to Mark for that. Go to brewlosophy.com forward slash music, and it'll take you to the SoundCloud for African Tiger, Gaja Magic, Champagne, Champagne, <laughs> Champagne, Champagne, man. That's yeah. That's and, <laughs> and the Blood Brothers on SoundCloud. There you go. Yeah. I forgot we put that on there because so many people were asking at the beginning of the, of the podcast. So yeah, great stuff. He's an incredibly talented guy who I unfortunately don't have too much contact with these days, but he was, he was gracious enough to allow me to tap into his uh, creative genius for all of that. Now, uh, do I pick the the I do all of the selection for stuff like that as the producer of this show. That's all on me. I do create most of our own copy though. So by copy for those who aren't in the marketing realm of things, copy are just that's just the words that we use for our ads. So the stuff that we're saying in the advertisements, uh, the ones that we do ourselves, that is referred to as copy in the world of marketing. Um, for the most part, I will come up with it and then I will have it approved by the sponsor. So uh, I want it to sound you know like us, um, and so I'll write it out, send it to the sponsor. If they have any tweaks, which they usually don't, they'll send that back and we'll make the tweaks. Um, so hopefully that sufficed to answer what you've been wanting to ask forever, Will. Uh, you also asked what DAW or DAW do I use? That just means digital audio workstation. So what am I recording into? I am definitely not a Pro Tools user. I was born in 1981. And so uh, <laughs> that's kind of my joke with Pro Tools. There, are, And I'm also a Mac. I use all Apple Mac products in everything that I do, uh, which is going to, I bet a lot of people already know what I'm going to say here. I've had the option to use Logic or Logic Pro many times. It's really a, a, an affordable option. But when I was using it, it just didn't seem any different for our purposes than the DAW that is included with every Apple Mac product you purchase, GarageBand. So that is what we use. This is being recorded into GarageBand through very nice microphones. I've got a Shure SM7B. Uh, all of the guys who are remote use the Zoom H1N uh, handy recorders. Those are pretty cheap. They're about 100 bucks, but I do some post-editing on it to make it sound like they're in the room with me, at least to get it as close as possible. Uh, I run my mics through a Focusrite 18i8, the Scarlett 18i8, uh, which allows me, I can do up to four people live at the same time, and then I can, uh, I can actually piggyback on a 2i2 that I have to add two more microphones. So when we go remote or we go live, um, I'll often do that so that we can get audience participation. Uh, and that's it. I run it right into GarageBand and I am not complaining about the way it works. So no need to make a change. Did any of that make sense to you, Will? 
Um, you said something about a band in your garage. So that's awesome. <laughs> hey, I'm from Seattle. You know, it's common up there. So let's start a grunge band, buddy. <laughs> yeah, grunge band. Just do Alice in Chains covers. That's about the the grungiest I get is Alice in Chains. So Alice in Chains and STP. That's all we do. <laughs> I'd be, yeah, I'm not so sure on the STP part of it, but uh, occasional right. Pearl Jam. It'll be fine. <laughs> Who's gonna be? Who's gonna be Eddie? You or me? I mean, that's gonna be the rough part. <laughs> I don't think either one of us are gonna sound like him, so we can alternate. It'll be fine. I just saw. So Tim, the you know beer reviewer extraordinaire, Tim, he uh, he sent me this this thing on Instagram yesterday of a guy who was who was try, you know singing the words to to Yellow Leadbetter, one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs, probably my number one favorite Pearl Jam song. And it was you know if you've ever heard that song, the, the lyrics go something along the lines of on a on a boat out on a yeah. Eddie Vedder doesn't even know what he's singing. He, he was so stoned out of his mind. He couldn't rep- replicate it. I'm glad they recorded it that one time. Yeah, me too. And here's the amazing thing about that song is I feel it. Like I feel it in my soul. I have no idea what he's saying there. Uh, so anyways, we, I don't think we're going to be starting a grunge band anytime soon, Will. Uh, but those are those are the recording. That's the recording gear that I use, the DAW. Hopefully that answers your question, Will. Next question comes from Lee Bjornstrand from Malmo, Sweden. So all the way across the the world from us. Uh, He says, recently I've been listening to early podcast episodes because I believe they focused on some really fundamental and meaningful experiments. The one about fermentation vessel material really got me thinking. I still ferment in plastic buckets, which I exchange quite frequently, and I found a way to make, quote, closed transfers with them. But in that experiment, tasters could tell a difference between the beers fermented in either plastic or stainless steel. Uh, I want to jump in real quick. We've actually done uh, a few experiments comparing different fermenter materials. The one thing that you can't separate from the material thing, though, is the fact that they are different shapes, slightly different sizes, might be different volumes. So it's really hard to say with certainty that the differences that we did find in some of those experiments were because of the material alone. But personally, I've made the jump to thinking that that's what it was. Now, when the, I, I'm already answering the question and there's far more to it, but I wanted to get this out there. It may very well be because of oxygen permeability. It might be because of something else. So those are things I, I like to keep in mind as we proceed with Lee's question. He says, so I think there's room for improvement in my brewing process. I have plenty of empty corny kegs, which seem like a perfect vessel to ferment in. My only issue is that it holds a smaller volume. I currently fill my kegs to brimming and leave a little bit of beer in the fermenter. Fermenting in a keg would leave, lead to volume losses in headspace and troube. One way around this would be to brew a higher gravity wort, ferment in a corny keg, transfer that strong beer through a floating dip tube to another keg, then dilute that with water to full volume. So my questions, one, what effect would this high gravity brewing and subsequent dilution have on body, mouthfeel, head retention, flavor, and aroma? And two, should I make any mineral additions to the dilution water? Whew. Man, that's that's a lot to unpack there, but but thank you. Um, and thank you for confirming that we did more fundamental stuff early on, and now we're much more convoluted experiments later in the game. So thank you for confirming that in your first couple of sentences, joking aside. <laughs> okay, so... Um, I know plastic is more oxygen permeable. Uh, I, I know that's one of those things, but I don't know that plastic materials what is what I think makes buckets a bad idea. My issue with um, you know the the brew buckets, and I brewed in one for a long time, is that I never had one that actually sealed very well. Um, they always kind of had a leak somewhere, or the the airlock wouldn't bubble it because it wasn't quite lid wasn't quite all the way on, and so I don't know that having a plastic bucket versus a stainless steel matters, um, as much for 
materials it does for oxygen getting in through other ways. Cause I don't think you, you may or may not get that much oxygen permeability, but I know that for a fact that with the buckets I had never sealed. Um, so if you, if you want to stick with plastic, I think there's a lot of PT options out there like the firm Zillow, which apparently seals well enough to pressure ferment and things up to 35 PSI and I, which is just under two and a half bar for those of our friends uh, that, that live overseas and you can get them for under a hundred us. I don't know how many euros that would be, but, uh, just under a hundred dollars us. Um, but you you are right in the fact that if you did brew in a five gallon or 19 liter keg, you will have to reduce your batch size by, you know, at least five or so liters, you know, maybe, maybe up to six liters, eight liters. Um, so, uh, you know, so you are correct in that. Um, now if you have a bunch of kegs, you could just split batch it and then combine it later down the road. Um, or, you know, I, I haven't personally added water to high OG beer. That's not something I've, I've actually done. I would, I think if it was me, I would probably be content with just having slightly smaller batch sizes. Cause that just means I get to brew more beer, which isn't really a problem. Cause part of the fun is just brewing more beer for me. Yeah. Um, but if that is a problem for you, I don't think there's anything truly long with like adding water other than it sounds like kind of a pain, uh, for, for the water treatment. I don't know. You could either, there's a couple of different ways you, you definitely want it from a sanitized source or you do want to have it, uh, you know, boiling, cooled for whenever you rack on top of it because you want to make sure that that water doesn't introduce any um, microbes or anything funky. I think if you used RO water, you'd probably be fine. Um, you know, and if you used RO water or, you know, distilled water, if you just added it, it would keep your sulfide to chloride ratio pretty consist- constant. Like it wouldn't be the same minerality, but you would have a constant sulfide to chloride ratio. Or I think you would also be okay with treating your water with whatever minerals to keep it consistent. I think you could go either way with that. Um, but for me, if I was going to do this, I might just do the smaller batch size because I'm lazy. And that seems like you're, you're doing a lot of extra work that I don't know if it's necessary just for the loss of maybe, you know, four to six liters of beer. Yeah, so there there are a couple of things I want to comment on on this. First off, I've not only done the dilution thing. Um, I, I, I was just as curious as Lee seems to be about this, and so I just tried it out for myself, and it worked fine. I mean, it, it, surprisingly fine. I've also had beers from other people that were made that way, and they tasted fine. My issue with dilution, though, is in order to do that blend, to blend the water with the, the the fermented beer, you have to have, for the most part, now I'm sure there are ways around this, I'm not saying there aren't, uh, you have to expose something to more oxygen than I'm personally comfortable comfortable with, even if it's just the dissolved oxygen in the water that you're diluting with. That's my concern, is 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 how, how is this gonna affect shelf life and stability of the beer uh, that I do not want oxidation to be a part of, especially if it's a hoppy pale beer. Yeah, maybe you could get away with it in something darker. You know, I don't know. But um, I would absolutely, if you're going to do this, what I would do is put that water, however much you're doing, in a keg. I mean, it becomes very complicated. I would add a little bit of a very small amount of PMB or SMB, uh, that's sodium or potassium metabisulfite, uh, to scrub any oxygen that's in there. And then I would force that water into a purged keg and then rack the beer into said purged keg as well under a closed transfer to avoid all oxygen, uh, as much oxygen exposure as possible. 
I hate oxidation. I mean, that, that's one thing that I've changed massively in my thinking about brewing uh, over the years. And so I, that's the way I would do it. But I'm with Will. You, well, before I get to that, there is another option. I believe Clawhammer Supply is now selling their, it's an eight gallon or seven gallon uh, fermentation keg. So it ba- it's basically just a keg, but it does have a bigger volume. So you can make your full five gallon batches. Uh, you're gonna be spending a pretty penny on that stuff, which is great. You're supporting small business and we love Clawhammer massively. But if you're willing to just drop a gallon off of your of your batch size, I mean, that's only a gallon of beer and you get all of the benefits that you're talking about here, Lee. So that's the way I would do it is just, I would just reduce my batch size and, and ferment in kegs or, you know, pick up another one of these cool uh, products that are out there nowadays uh, to get to, you know, get through with that. Now, I wanted to make one last comment because we started off talking about plastic buckets and the the fact that they produce a beer or we've been able to demonstrate that the beers may fermented in plastic buckets do seem to be reliably distinguishable from those that are fermented in either glass or stainless steel. That doesn't mean bad or worse. Uh, I want to point out that Brewlosophy Steve Thanos is a plastic bucket user, and he has perhaps done more pro-ams from winning competitions than anybody uh, else in Brulosophy right now. So it's not that plastic buckets are ruining beer or making bad beer. Just because it creates something different doesn't mean that doesn't, it's not a bad word. Different's not a bad word, right? So, uh, you know, if you're liking the beers you're making with your plastic bucket and they're not coming out oxidized, then you've got a good process. No need to move on from that if you don't, if you don't need to. Fair enough. Okay, so the next question is from Jeremiah Pickard. Oh, man, this is a fun one. That's why we saved it for last, Will. This is going to be an exciting one for us. <laughs> yes, super exciting. I'm looking to upgrading my homebrew lab with a laminar flow hood. <laughs> I currently use an alcohol lamp when streaking plates or inoculating a starter wort from a plate. As laminar flow filters are insanely expensive, my question is, do any of y'all have any idea how often I should change either the primary filter or the laminar flow filter? <laughs> the cheapest 24 by 48 by 6 inch uh 14 filter I could find was $560 US. Also, do any of y'all have any recommendations as for a vertical or horizontal flow hood? I'm currently thinking that a horizontal one would be best for my setup. So, uh, the reason we call Brewlosophy Brewlosophy is because at the time that I came up with this silly term, uh, I was massively obsessed with both brewing and philosophy. Uh, I was reading all of the classic Greek philosophers, some of the more modern German and French philosophers, uh, highly into the more existential humanistic side of things, as you might have guessed. And so I would like to share a quote from an old school philosopher as it came through the the man who interpreted uh, his, his works. So this quote is attributed to Socrates, though I believe it was shared by Plato. To know is to know that you know nothing. That is the meaning of true knowledge. Now, I'm not saying that I'm a wise person. I'm not saying that I'm a terribly knowledgeable person, but I know when to tap out. And I have no idea what Jeremiah is talking about in this question. I know what a laminar flow hood is. I definitely know that. And and laminar flow is like undisturbed flow, right? So that you're not stirring stuff up. And they use these for, you know, yeast stuff, if you will. Uh, I would have... No clue where to start with giving you a recommendation for on this stuff, Jeremiah. And in in part 
partially I want to apologize because if I came across as making it sound like we know about this stuff, I do apologize. That is not the case. Again, I'm happy to say when I don't know anything, I poked around for an answer. And as I was doing that, I realized how stupid it would be for me to, to provide, to try to like fake a response to this. Chances are your knowledge is going to make your Google searching go a lot further than what I could find uh, on the internet. So I do apologize for that, but I did want to want to include your question because you took the effort to submit it. And so I'm going to take the effort to let you know how big of an idiot I am in not being able to answer it. So, so you're right. Laminar flow is basically the undisturbed flow of a, a fluid in this case air. But if you wanted a visual representation, you could have a water hose shooting out. And if there was any turbulence introduced in that water hose, it would obviously spray out. And if it's got laminar flow, it would be just kind of a consistent uh, flow of fluid out, out of the hose. Um, so we've all experienced laminar flow and, and a laminar flow hood is kind of it's 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 more of like a cabinet when you look at them. Yeah. Um, but but you know basically it's trying to create an air kind of pocket so that you're pushing out clean air from a HEPA filter um, so that bad stuff doesn't get into your cabinet. And so um, based off of what you've said, it seems that a class two bio cabinet is best. Horizontal <laughs> flow does a better job of protecting the sample and person, whereas vertical does a good job of protecting either the person or the sample. Since you're doing yeast. Um, obviously you're not worried about some kind of biohazard contaminating you. Um, a tip of help, HEPA filter changes occur one to three years, depending on, uh, environment and use. And, um, this was all generated by copilot AI. Thank you. Chat GPT V3. Uh, I apologize for any hallucinations in advance. <laughs> I was like, damn, he knows his stuff. This guy work in a lab or something. No, chat. No, GPT. I, I'm, a, I'm an it guy. So I, I know chat GPT. Oh, that's awesome. I love chat GPT though. Uh, I'm, I find myself not using it nearly as much as I was when it first came out. It was kind of like that honeymoon, honeymoon phase, but Jeremiah, the one tip I will give you, I've talked to a few people who have built basically garage labs in their home. And what they, uh, the, the last person I talked to about this was a couple years ago. Uh, but he was telling me that he got most of his materials that his, his, uh, his hood, all of that stuff from a local university. Apparently their science lab has to replace stuff every once in a while. So they sell their old stuff. And so you can tap into a, a local university or something and ask them, Hey, look, do you have any of this stuff? Or do you have something that's kind of like it? And if you're going to sell it, is there a way I can get on your list, right? And that's what happened with this this buddy of mine, and it worked out. He built a really cool lab, a little bit bigger. Like a lot of the stuff was a little bit bigger than I think he was looking for originally, but it was a lot cheaper because this school just needed to get it off their hands. So, and, and I don't know, I don't know how serious he is about it either. Like I know there are YouTube videos that that show you like laminar flow hoods like DIY and granted it's using like you know plywood and some other things that aren't exactly like super sterile lab grade equipment but you know depending on what you're doing and and I'm assuming you're doing this for a hobby like you may not want to go invest you know 600 bucks in filters and stuff when you can build one for 300. Exactly. Totally. And that, I mean, that'd be the way I'd approach it at least. And who knows, maybe in the future you, you could just ask chat GPT to build you, you know, a lab and it'll just construct it for you. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool, but I doubt that's ever going to be the case, but that is all the time that we've got for our 320th episode. Thanks again to everybody who submitted questions, whether or not we were able to answer them sufficiently uh, is up to you, but we had a blast answering them either way. How about you, Will? Did you have a good time? 
Oh, always, always. Laminar flow hoods and all. <laughs> well, if there's anything you'd like for us to address in a future Bruin A episode, whether it has to do with brewing or not, please send your questions to feedback at brewlosophy.com and make sure to indicate it's for Bruin A and the subject line so we're sure to add it to the list. We can't have these episodes without you guys submitting questions, so do not hold back. We like having a list that's too long. Uh, don't forget to check out the Brew Lab podcast where host Kate Job takes you into the lab with brewing professionals to discuss the fascinating work they've done on our favorite beverage and make sure to head over to brewlosophy.com to read up on all of the fun beer and brewing stuff we are up to the brewlosophy podcast is made possible by the generous support of our sponsors as well as all of our rad listeners we seriously could not do this without you cheers to everyone who has subscribed and left a review of our show it makes a huge difference if you haven't yet please consider doing so head over to brewlosophy.com support to view a list of ways you can easily help us to continue producing this podcast if you want a reward for your support visit patreon.com brewlosophy thanks again for listening we'll be back next week with another episode of the brewlosophy podcast until then think beer the morning with some hot tea, lemon and honey, cause it soothes my bro. Put some herb in the bowl, yeah, it's homegrown. Ain't gotta go through the middle man no more. Life is good, the likelihood of me. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.